Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today, our leader is Bob Moritz of PwC. We'll talk about driving change at scale and how to develop leaders who can really make an impact. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. What we've got to do is actually make sure that the workforce that we have today is not necessarily in the same jobs that they have today, but rather skilled to take on other new jobs. That's Bob Moritz of PwC, one of the world's largest professional services firms with more than 280,000 employees and a network of firms in 155 countries. That sort of size gives PwC the scale and resources to tackle some outsized and complicated challenges, including committing more than $3 billion to an upscaling initiative to support its staff and the clients and communities it serves. It's also been putting out the clarion call for a set of non-financial metrics that help companies measure how they're doing well for society. Such complicated challenges require developing leaders poised to make change happen at scale. We have to prepare our people to be better leaders for tomorrow to serve the societal needs that we're all grappling with right now. He'll talk about why that development is so essential, the importance of productive stress, and the questions that leaders must ask themselves to push any long-term goal forward. But first, Bob will talk a little bit about upskilling and why leaders need to take it seriously. Over the last couple of years, CEOs are becoming increasingly uncomfortable that they didn't have enough skills or the right skills in their organizations to achieve their strategic objectives. And according to our CEO survey, which we do once a year, and we launch it in Davos, 74% of those CEOs said there was a concern there. And you have a number of people around the world that were increasingly uncomfortable that there was sufficiency in terms of their skill set to either find a job opportunity or keep a job opportunity. And last but not least was the challenge of, uh, I'll call it the underprivileged and those not as advantaged as others that really have no access to education that are losing out. And unfortunately, because of the way the world is operating these days, there is an asymmetry in terms of what's happening. And that actually is creating more distrust. It's creating more uncertainty. It's minimizing opportunities for people. And equally as important, it's got the concern around social injustice and whether or not capitalism is serving all as many as we possibly can, as well as it possibly can. So that's the phenomenon we're trying to solve for. In PwC, a couple of years ago, we started our own journey around upskilling our own people. The idea here was that we wanted to give people both the opportunity with new skills and to give them the time to attain those skills to then apply those skills and have the opportunity to change the way in which they worked. And coming out of that, we would get three benefits. One benefit would be a better people experience. And as a result, you'd be a better magnet for talent. Second is you end up with, I'll call it change processes that are more relevant, more valuable, more effective, and more efficient. You can do more. And last but not least, you can end up with a, an amount of innovation that perhaps an organization's never had before. And by giving our people the tools, that being the technologies themselves, by giving them the skills and giving them access to data, they had an opportunity to have an impact on all three of those things. Great lessons learned embedded in an exercise. And as we scaled that on a global basis, it was important not only to learn from that, but then apply those learnings elsewhere, which gets to then our initiative. So back about a year and maybe a month or so ago, we launched something called New World, New Skills. It was a $3 billion investment 
where we would continue to invest in our own people with upskilling. We would then help clients do the same because a lot of organizations and countries were actually helping with. And then last but not least is collaborate with others. And that was the connection then to UNICEF and GenU as an organization that had a tremendous reach around the world to get into areas that were focused on this. They had a specific focus in the case of GenU to the youth side of the equation, those from the age of 10 to 24. And we thought by coming together with them and other institutions, we could actually have an impact in the local communities and the education systems around the world to get to that scalable solution faster and more better than perhaps left to its own devices. And again, what we're trying to do here is accelerate the change and put some more urgency on it. The one point I would make as well, Linda, if I can, when I use the word upskilling, I want to be clear, we're actually talking about how do you create a sustained environment for continuous learning? We probably want to upskill people in digital technologies. We want to upskill them in the case of having them apply new technologies to the way they live and work. And we want to enhance the skills for leaders to create the right environment for all of this to happen in a safe way. And it's got to be this continuous learning because the world's moving too fast and it's too dynamic to leave it as one and done. To really meet that upskilling need that we have globally, what do we need to be doing? Is it just a mindset issue? Is it also an infrastructure issue as well? Yeah, so you're, you've hit it and it is an end statement, not an or statement. You definitely need a group of leaders to come together in the business community, the government area, as well as in the local communities and educators to say, how do we actually tackle this problem? The way to tackle this problem, I think, is three major levels. Number one, you've got to get people to have access. Uh, this could be either access to the schools or access to education in some form. The second is by having really good content. What are the right skills? What are the right programs? What are the right courses? And when can you deliver them to people in a quality way? When people go to the concept of upskilling, I think there's a generalization that it's all about how do you give people the right skills to code, to create the new op, app and bot. We're actually talking more so. How do you actually connect the concept of technology and humanity together? And that's a really important thing. And last but not least is how do we actually deal with the issue of if you enhance skill sets, then don't have the demand for those people. That actually creates more friction. So we actually have to be equally focused as a group of leaders to say, how can I create the supply side that's better equipped for the new world that we're living in, and at the same time have enough innovation and entrepreneurship to create the demand that actually will leverage those skill sets and those new techniques than the people that have them going forward. We've mentioned how upskilling isn't as simple as teaching people to code, that it means tackling everything from culture to infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about connecting those dots as a leader and figuring out what's needed? The fact that the young students have access to food and nutrition equally is important in that regard to the content that has to be delivered. The quality of the teachers equally is important as well as the support to the extent they have it on the home front. So all of those other environmental ecosystem type of points become really important to further accelerate and accentuate what we're trying to accomplish here because it is a jigsaw puzzle of which when I talk about you know, connectivity and a mechanism to actually deliver, then the content and then the application of that, that's where, again, society, 
community, government, and business have to come together to try to trial for those challenges. It's been a year and a month. What's been the journey so far? Can you tell us a little bit about what's been achieved? So if you look at Generation Unlimited, basically the offshoot of what UNICEF had focused on, we, PwC, are just one of many other corporate organizations that are in the middle of this. But the good news here is we've connected with 100 million people so far to get them that content in various countries. The question now is, okay, how do we continue to scale that to be bigger? And how do we actually make sure that the content and thereafter the application is actually delivered as well? What we've got to do is actually make sure that the workforce that we have today is not necessarily in the same jobs that they have today, but rather skilled to take on other new jobs. This is an end statement here where it's good for the people, it's good for business, it's also good for the economies and the citizens of those communities and countries going forward. You've said that business leaders need to be taking more of a responsibility for upskilling. Why is this and, and what's holding them back? CEOs struggle with the fact that they are not necessarily finding enough people with the right skills to actually demonstrate the change in the organization they want to become. Second, we are seeing an increased amount of demand from stakeholders. A lot of people, when they think about activists, they think about investor activists. Your employees are becoming more of an activist these days, demanding that they should expect a contribution to their long-term sustainability and to give them the opportunity to succeed. They're not looking for a guarantee. They're looking for opportunity. So that demand from the employee perspective becomes really important as well as the demand for the future recruits. So, so that is another element of this. And last but not least, I think the business community acknowledges that their own purpose is not only to deliver to the internal stakeholders, that being you know, maybe their consumers or their investors, but rather the society at large. And they know that government can't do this by themselves. And as a result, that's why the government, business, and community leaders and educators have got to come together to do their part. And they've got a role to play in this if they wanna be sustainable, thoughtful and being recognized for their efforts as you think about the SDGs that we put out there from the UN a number of years ago. Speaking of the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you were one of the many leaders putting out the call for better non-financial metrics, working with the Forum's International Business Council, the IBC, and other top firms to release a set of metrics that help companies better measure how they're doing well for society. Can you tell me a little bit about that effort and the impact that it can have? Yeah, so, so today you have some great standards and regulation around financial reporting, which does a good job of articulating how a company has performed with a historical perspective. What you see moving forward is that there's a demand for more information on not necessarily just what's happening and what has happened, but rather how are you investing for that long term? How are you thinking about sustainability of your organization? The second thing that uh, I think is really important is to understand the phenomenon that's happening on the asset or asset uh, management side of the equation. More and more organizations, institutional investors, private equity and the like, are having enough capital and then choosing where to deploy that capital. They want to bank on the people that are having an impact. We call them impact investing or ESG investing, et cetera. In order to get the money in the right place, the question is, how do you differentiate one organization from another, one country from another? And as a result, you need a better mechanism to provide for some standards to ensure comparability, to demonstrate progress, and to hold people accountable. The entire system has got to change. And what I mean by that, it's not the reporting that's got to change. It's on the front end in terms of how do you get capital in the right people's hands to actually have the impact. How do you incent the right behaviors 
for change, to make it better and more long-term sustainable over time, to serve stakeholders over time, and then get to the reporting. So the reporting exercise came out of the WEF's initiative where the CEOs looked to the external world and said, if we're going to move in this direction, what, what are the standards? So let's start off with a basic set of metrics that were aligned against our four pillars, those four pillars being the planet, people, good governance, and prosperity. What the WEF's project did was actually pick a few of them from existing standards. We didn't create anything new. And the idea was to actually set a baseline for everybody to buy into that and use those. And within that, we landed on 20 primary measures that we would hope all institutions would adopt as the first step of a journey. And if we can get mass adoption, we can avoid the fragmentation where other regulators and standard setters may try to set up their own. We put forward a proposal working with the WEF and the business community. This was the profession working with all of them, but it was demand-led, meaning it wasn't the profession's idea, it was actually the business community's idea coming out of the IBC, where we've got about 120 or 130 CEOs. And our concept here is to now, that we've landed those after consultation, and we've adjusted them, how can we get people now to adopt it to start to continue to build upon that journey? You wrote recently that leaders in civil society, industry, and business need to act quickly when it comes to alignment on and adoption of these metrics. Why is time of the essence? The world needs us. As I said earlier, we have been focused as a society, as you think about capitalism, at a corporate and a country level of short-termism and just focus on growth or bottom line returns, growth in the top line, growth in the bottom line, as opposed to what I'll call the sustainability and long-termism. That's necessary. As I said earlier, the system that has served us well has done really well, but I'm not sure it's the right mechanism to serve us going forward in the world that we're dealing with today as you look at the megatrends and the downstream implications. So now's the time to strike. Now's the time to actually move in that direction. The market, and I mean the broader market, not the financial markets, the broader market of businesses, consumers, suppliers, governments, regulators, employees, and investors all are looking for more information to make better decisions to really drive the change. And they hope that change is not only beneficial to the bottom lines of countries and companies, but also benefits of the long-term sustainability of the planet and its citizens within. We talked about jigsaws and ecosystems. These are long-term, complicated projects. What helps you make sure that uh, the right elements and the right people are in place to make sure that these things are getting actioned? What, what helps you in this long-termism, as you've put it? Yeah, so, so, so step number one is making sure you have an understanding of who your stakeholders are and what they want and what they need and how you as an organization or you as a leader can help fulfill those. So being connected to those stakeholders and, and what I mean by connected, it's a dialogue. You've got to ask, you've got to listen, you've got to respond, you've got to portray what you're doing and why, because you're never going to satisfy all of those stakeholders. And if you think about the assets a company has, and I don't mean the physical assets, but what is the company good at and then what the world needs in between. And when you see that overlay, that's your purpose. Why do you exist and, and you serve those stakeholders? So that becomes, I think, the first point. The second point is then the choices you have to make. How will you allocate your own capital? And in this case, I don't mean just financial capital. I mean human capital. Where do you ask your leaders to spend their time to have the biggest impact? And how, at the end of the day, are you more trusted? The two things that organizations or countries 
um, have to achieve is they have to be trusted and they have to deliver the outcomes that people want or that they want. And so you've got to deliver both because if you deliver on one side, you will be much more of a trusted organization. Right. So so making sure that your long term sustainability focuses on outcomes and change, driving change and trust, I think, is a big opportunity for the world as we look ahead. And as a leader, as you're bringing those stakeholders together, what questions are you asking yourself to make sure that the right dialogue is happening within the project? What are you asking yourself? So the first question is, do we have the right frame and context before moving forward? The second point is, let's be smart about what we choose to do, and let's be clear about what we're doing and why we're doing it. There's many different challenges out there in the world. What are the ones you can control and have an impact on? What are the ones you can influence on? And then what are the ones that, Kenley, you've got to watch and scenario plan for? That becomes an important phenomenon that leaders have to pay attention to as they look at the world that we're dealing with. And you don't want your teams to be distracted. I can describe a situation a, a couple of months ago in dealing with a board of a company, supervisory board, a large portion of that board meeting was dedicated to the headline news. Many things in those headline news were totally uncontrollable by this board or that management team or by that company. So we had to refocus on, well, let's talk about what you can control and that's managing the time, right? Time's important here. And then the last thing you have to ask yourself is, do you have the right people driving change? change is really hard, right? You can't accept status quo. You've got to push the agenda. You've got to create some stress. You've got to do some things differently. You have to l learn to not only listen, but act upon what you're hearing. Otherwise, you start to lose trust. So all of those factors become really important as you set an agenda, manage that agenda, and hopefully achieve that agenda. You said an interesting thing right now that you have to create a little stress. How do you create productive stress. Yeah. So, so one of the things to do, at least from my perspective, is you, you definitely need to be, as I said earlier, connecting with your ecosystem. What you say and how you say it matters. And having some instant feedback is a really good thing. So you want to be reaching out, not necessarily just to your direct reports. You want to be reaching out on the ground to get many data points so you can calibrate. Is the stress too much that it's paralyzing? Or is the stress not enough that not enough action's happening? Or was the way you said it not clear enough to motivate the change? Or did you not clarify what's good change versus bad change? So making sure that you're connecting with and having authentic conversations with those that are one or two or three degrees of separation away from you, as you talk about the agendas you're setting and what you're saying and how you're saying it, that you have that feedback and get that instantaneously and adjust as needed. That's really important. You've held a number of roles at PwC. You started right out of college. How have you changed the most, do you think, in that time as a leader? Probably the biggest change for me over the years was the concept of leverage. I would say early on in my career, even as a young partner, for whatever reason, ego or otherwise, you felt you had to be in the middle of everything. If you're going to do things in scale, if you're going to change and train the next generation of leaders, You've got to give them the opportunity to lead and you can't be as on the ground, you know, everywhere all the time. So you've got to actually think about what your team looks like, how you can provide leverage and then give them the rope to do things appropriately at the local level as opposed to at the center level. So that becomes probably my biggest personal change that's happened over the years that I think has benefited me and hopefully 
benefited those around me as well. Is there a habit that you swear by, something you just can't work without? Probably one habit is virtual connections that are needed to stay uh, connected to your network. Any day I'm trying to connect with somebody, uh, friend, niece, nephew, cousin, brother, sister, son, daughter, family member, whatever the case may be, using a text, using email, using a phone call, whatever technique is appropriate, reach out to friends, family, you know, at various points during the day to check in on them, to make sure they're okay, tell them we're thinking about them, you know, implicitly or explicitly. Um, as you think about your own sanity <laughs> and your own ecosystem, it gives you a break outside of work and outside of the stresses uh, that you're dealing with. I think it's important so they understand that you're thinking about them and connect because of both the pandemic, the, uh, the pandemic fatigue and some of the economic and, and health stresses that are out there right now. The second one is it's important for you to disconnect either on exercise, recreation, social, entertainment, whatever the case may be. And I know that becomes harder in this world that we're living in today. But if it's 24-7 dealing with the challenges ahead of you, you, you'll go crazy. Making sure that you're taking the time to recharge is a really important thing for people to do. And I'm going to argue even more so as was proven over the last 10 months in a big time way. Is there a book that you recommend, something that really changed your mind or something you just think everybody needs to pick up and read right now? The person who leads our leadership development and strategy work just had a book called 10 Years to Midnight. Uh, and it's all built around the ticking clock of some of the major challenges that are out there. In that, he describes these trends. And in that, he describes the crises that exist today. And the question that it supposes is, are you going to do anything about this such that it turns into a much more optimistic, hopeful narrative? Or are you going to leave it by the side and let it become a half empty and more negative, catastrophic narrative? And, and that one, I think, has been interesting for two reasons. One, it's helped refine us and me in terms of what we should be thinking about and as a result, what we should be doing from a strategy perspective. When we've talked to clients about it, it resonates quite a bit. And it also, I think, nicely lays out for government leaders the challenge they have. So to me, it was a great opportunity to sort of encapsulate uh, the challenges that all of us are seeing and feeling these days in a simple, easy read type of way to put some context and then really get to the next steps of what do we do. What in your mind are your big concerns or priorities for the year ahead? So, so a couple of things. Uh, first, uh, we're still dealing with the realities of a pandemic. This world has changed pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. And that amount of stress also causes another element of worry, which is the physical and mental well-being of people coming out of what I'll call pandemic fatigue. So that becomes, I think, an increasing concern as we think about society overall. And if I go back to the reporting conversation we had, well, we had four pillars, right? We had the planet, people, prosperity, and good governance. Probably up until the pandemic, there was a lot more focus on the planet side of the equation of late. Now it's actually the people side of the equation. And, and we are seeing this ramification and asymmetry in terms of the haves and the have-nots even more pronounced than ever before. That's why that upskilling discussion becomes so important. To me, it's all about how do you actually, as a leader, remain calm and confident? How do you portray a, a sense of opportunity? and make sure that you're taking care of your people. If you take care of your people and give them the right opportunity, the rest will fall in place very nicely. All of us can improve in some way. Is there something that in the next year you would like to improve on to do 
10% better? For me, it's about how do you actually focus on leadership development? Are the future leaders really positioned for success tomorrow in this world that we are living in? So as we think about leadership development more broadly, that's something that I personally and we collectively want to spend more time as we think about the next generation and the youth that's coming up. I would tell you 10 years ago when we went through the financial crisis, there was a tremendous amount of learning. The question I would ask today, now having to go through another crisis, is did we really learn and apply those learnings from the last one from where we are today? And I'm going to argue no. Likewise, can we take the learnings from today and do something with them for tomorrow and get our people better prepared? Because we, at some point, will have another uh, health issue. We will have another economic issue. And we're only finding ourselves you know, halfway through the journey right now. But we have to be, prepare our people to be better leaders for tomorrow to serve the societal needs that we're all grappling with right now. That was Bob Moritz. Before we go, don't forget to check out this week's episode of the World Economic Forum podcast, World versus Virus. I've started to see the spread of misinformation as a global health crisis. It is an infection at the very heart of our democracies. On this week's World versus Virus, fake news, conspiracies and lies, why the battle for truth may prove even tougher than the fight against COVID-19. We'll hear from the most senior communicator at the United Nations, who's urging us all to pause before we share, and from Mark Little, founder of Storyful, who says we urgently need to improve media literacy to be able to sift fact from fiction. If people cannot trust information about the critical challenges in our world today, whether it's coronavirus or climate change, then we cannot make recent decisions as a democracy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at fake news and how to stop it, this is World vs. Virus. That's a highlight from World vs. Virus brought to you by Robin Pomeroy. Get that in all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, and Anna Bruce Lockhart for all of their help with the production of this episode. Thanks also goes to this week's guest, Bob Moritz. And thanks to you for listening. Please rate and review our podcast. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online at wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina at the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.